Welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Frances Harry and my co-host Mark Danis did expect to be here tonight, um, but he's not able to be with me after all. Um, I ask you to please keep him and his family in your prayers as they are at the bedside of a dying family member. So we just pray that the precious blood of Jesus would be upon them all. Well, I'm not in the studio, but in my home, and my cats seem to be a captive audience, so don't be surprised if you hear them meowing. I think it's the spirit of St. Francis of Assisi that attracts them and keeps them around. Anyway, Mark and I were in the midst of a detailed series on St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, a discoused Carmelite nun whose body lays incorrupt in Florence, Italy. She's nicknamed the Little Flower of Florence, and her motto was to return love for love. In analyzing her life, we can learn much about progress in the spiritual journey and get insights on how we too can grow spiritually. And that is something that Mark and I are very uh, emphatic about is sharing uh, all these wonderful ways that the saints show us to grow in love of God and neighbor. We had spent quite a bit of time discussing the ascetical period of St. Teresa Margaret's life and recently began discussing the mystical period of her life. Our last conversation about her was about a great grace that she received, was the Deus Caritas Est, which is Latin for God is love. And this is where she received a wound of love, which this grace lasted several days and she couldn't hide it. It was very evident. And this how she felt called to emulate by faith, insofar as is possible for a creature, the hidden interior life and actions of the intellect and will of the God-man Jesus and her desire to be totally hidden in Jesus. And I think her desire to be hidden is what has kept her hidden from our sight for all these many years. Um, we're only recently um, re getting books in English about her and so uh, it's with great joy that I share with you a resource book that we're using. It's called God is Love by Margaret Rowe. It's on the life of Teresa Margaret. And this is Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. At this point um, in our talk, after this grace of Deus Caritas says, she's only 19 and a half years old, but she's already at a very high degree of holiness. Some, some theologians speculate that at this time she's in the sixth mansion of the interior castle, as taught by St. Teresa of Avila, where wounds of love occur. St. Teresa Margaret's battle plan, and, and it can be our battle plan too, consisted of stringently examining herself through the lens of love for God, confidently abandoning all to God in patience and humility, which plays a big role, exercising a continual warfare against self through prayer, presence of God, and silence, and to follow Christ to Calvary, no matter what the cost, despite any repugnance. We remember her saying that word. <laughs> and then, after this grace follows her famous prayer. It's her act of oblation. And that's where I would like to begin today, by offering it as our opening prayer. So let us get recollected. Let's put the cares, the worries of the day aside, and, and let's really focus on God's presence within. And let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My God, I desire nothing save to become your perfect image. And since yours was a hidden life of humiliation, love, and sacrifice, so also I wish mine to be. I desire to enclose myself henceforth within your most loving heart as in a desert so that I may live in you and with you and for you 
this hidden life of love and sacrifice. O oh my Lord, you know my great desire to become a victim of your sacred heart, wholly consumed by the fire of your holy love. May your heart be the altar upon which my holocaust shall be made, and you be the priest who will consume this victim by the flames of your burning love. But how confused I am, my God, when I see what a worthless victim I am, and how unfitting is this sacrifice I ask you to accept. Yet, I am confident that all will be accomplished by the fire of divine love. My God, how well you know my great need of your help. I trust in your infinite mercy, and I shall always do so regardless of the spiritual state in which I find myself. Always and everywhere, I shall endeavor to recognize your will in all things, even though my eyes see only contradiction and uncertainty. I know that I cannot depend upon myself, so I shall trust completely in you. Nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ, for in you, O Lord, I have hoped. I shall never be confounded. In all things, I shall be content, knowing that the route I travel leads to Calvary. The thornier the path, the heavier the cross, the more consoled I shall be, because I desire to love you with a suffering love, a selfless love, an active love, with a firm, undivided, persevering love. I have promised you many things, but in no wise do I depend upon my own indolent spirit. You have enlightened me as to what I must do. Now, help me to execute it. All this I hope of your infinite mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that is her complete act of oblation as we know it. If there's any other parts, uh, it's not in any of the English books. So, uh, But it's a very beautiful prayer. I encourage you to take that prayer and to print it out and ponder it. Um, I'm sure you can find it online as well. But again, this prayer resulted from this great grace of Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, that St. Teresa Margaret received. And this grace was what St. Teresa of Avila would describe as a wound of love, as I said earlier. And it shows that St. Teresa Margaret is at the stage of spiritual betrothal in the sixth mansion of the interior castle. That would be before spiritual marriage, which occurs in the seventh mansion. This great grace unleashed within her an irresistible passion of love. Her aim was to conform herself more closely to the sacred heart of Jesus, becoming as closely as possible his duplicate. The flames of the sacred heart of Jesus would consume all her imperfections that had blocked her from complete union with God. Once purified and made one with God, she would become a channel through which his love and graces would flow out to others. And even now today, to you and me in her writings. St. Therese of Lisieux made her act of oblation to merciful love after such a wound of love. And we also have the great prayer of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Oh my God, Trinity whom I adore. You know, the riches of these prayers is great. And so it's good to ponder over them. Today, I want to discuss St. Teresa Margaret's Dark Night of the Spirit, which is a stage of marked passivity surrendered to God in which she's invaded inundated and ravaged by love. The living flame of love of God was the driving force in her for the rest of her life. And it was a short life. She died, I think, around 22 and a half years old. This scripture passage pertains to this period. It's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. God is love, and he who dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. 
Now, the title of this program is The Lord Thy God is a Consuming Fire. St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Dark Night of the Spirit. Let us first then revisit in brief what the dark night involves. I also invite listeners who want an in-depth discussion on the dark night to go to our archives located at www.carmeliteconversations.com and search for the program on St. John of the Cross particularly the one for September the 12th, 2011. So um, that is the one we had a guest, uh, Deacon, and also Dr. Tracy Jameson, who wonderfully explains what is happening in the dark night. St. John of the Cross is the master of the dark night, explaining it with great precision. To put things in perspective, there are two nights. The first night is the dark night of the sense, with both an active, what we do, and a passive, what God does, aspect. It is typically associated with the fourth mansion of the interior castle of St. Teresa of Avila. Then, after an interlude or rest in the fifth mansion, where the simple prayer of union with God occurs, the second night, the dark night of the spirit, begins in the sixth mansion, again with both active and passive components. And it's much more intense and with much deeper purgation. The suffering here in the dark night of the spirit and the fruits obtained may, may be compared to the passion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how intense. That's what we're talking about. And take note that this purification of a soul is not for that soul alone. Not just for one soul. No, no. It's of vital importance for the whole mystical body of Christ. So one person's advance in holiness is good for the whole body of Christ. And consequently, one person's demise in sinfulness is bad for the whole body of Christ. So let us encourage each other daily to pursue God, to pursue holiness, to respond favorably to his call to love because it affects us all. You know, in this day and age, people in general, they have forgotten God and they've forgotten the pursuit of holiness. So all the more reason that we must forge ahead courageously. Let us also remember God is a pure spirit and nothing impure can coexist with that purity. So to be with God, the soul must be purified. The dark night addresses this purification that may occur in this life. If it doesn't occur in this life, the purification happens after death and what we refer to as purgatory. A soul may go straight to heaven to be with God, but it must be pure to do so. And most of us need this purification. So it's best to be purified on earth before death, and that's my hope. May God grant us the grace to respond generously to his call for purification, because in the end, it's all about how well we love so what is the principle of darkness that we are talking about here? Well, the clearer and more obvious divine things are in themselves, the darker and more hidden they are to our souls naturally. For instance, the brighter the light, the more the owl is blinded. And the more one looks at the brilliant sun, the more the sun darkens the faculty of sight depriving and overwhelming it in its weakness. It's sort of like sun shining through a window. The more a ray of sunlight shining through a window is void of dust particles, the less clearly it is seen. However, when there's more dust particles in the air, we can more clearly see them because the dust particles here are our sins and attachments and imperfections. Let me give you some other examples. You know, you're in the dark 
and someone points a bright flashlight in your face. So what do you do? You usually squint and turn away, right? Well, that's the same effect that God's light has on a soul when it sees its own sins in the light of God. We want to hide, but we need to courageously give them to Jesus to repent and to work on doing good. You know, I entered a church recently, and I know this church. It's my home church, and I know they clean it at night when most people are not around this one entryway. And I was entering for daily Mass, and the, the sunlight was shining brightly as I opened through the door. And guess what I saw? I saw lots of cobwebs around the planters, around the entryway. And I'm sure they didn't see those at night when they just had the normal light on. But when the sunlight came in, it was so bright. Here you can see those cobwebs. Well, that's like the light of God shining on our sins and our soul. We see the cobwebs of our soul. Another example was I was outside in the sun and and then I was heading into an enclosed garage and there were no windows and he opened the door and for a pitch for a moment it's pitch black and I can think everything is clean and organized but when the light turns on I see there's lots of disorder and that garage needs cleaned up the light coming in has shown me the mess that really the darkness had hid before but now the dark rays of contemplation, which is the light of Christ, is shining on the mess, the sins, the imperfections, attachments, and, and makes us see them clearly. Now, you know, we've had them all along, but now because the bright light is shining on them, we are seeing them in greater contrast than ever before. And so we think we're worse off. But these are the things that keep us from being free. So, so we need to be purified of them. The purpose of the dark night, then, in general, is to heal and restore our capacity to love God and neighbor. It's a process of healing and transformation, and it can last many years. We're not just talking about a short period here. It shatters our illusions of ourselves and roots out our deepest attachments. God communicates his loving knowledge to us, but we experience it first as darkness and painful because God is goodness and purity. And we are not pure. And that's due to our original sin, our personal sin, or wounds that we've received throughout our life. As bright light is painful to those in the dark, so too the experience of God's healing love seems painful. There's both an active, what we do in cooperation with God, and a passive, what God is doing and what only God can do, aspect. God's love enlightens us so that we may be healed. This purgation may be likened to what the souls in purgatory go through. And that's what John of the Cross says, not just me. The dark night of sense purifies the outer faculties of the soul, while the dark night of spirit purifies the most interior faculties of the soul as well. Now, I realize that this is a deep topic. And this is talking at about a high level of holiness. But... We don't have a lot of material out there that, uh, that's in the, the popular Catholic culture that talks about this. And I, and I think we need it. We, we need to know uh, the depths of this purgation. That the dark night actually is God's merciful love and his loving wisdom in action that is drawing the soul closer to him. And simply stated, the dark night is an inflow of God into the soul to prepare it for a union of love with him. And it's by an infusion of God's own wisdom and love that he purifies, illumines, and transforms us and unites us to himself. St. John the Cross defines the dark night of the spirit with these words. This dark night is an inflowing of God into the soul which purges it from its ignorances and imperfections, habitual, natural, and spiritual, and which is called by contemplatives infused contemplation or mystical theology. Now, if you want to read about this dark night of the spirit, you can read John of the Cross's book, The Dark Night, and this is in book two, where we talk about the more fierce night, the night of the spirit. There's not very many souls that go through this dark night of spirit. 
And why is that? Well, they usually lack something. They could lack knowledge, especially self-knowledge and how God works in a soul. They could lack generosity in responding to God's grace, and that's huge. And they could also suffer from a lack of good spiritual direction. St. Teresa of Ava experienced that in her life. St. John of the Cross explains that the flame of love, which is the Holy Spirit, is wounding the soul and destroying and consuming in it the imperfections of its evil habits. And this is the operation of the Holy Spirit, wherein he prepares it for divine union and the transformation of love in God. And in its substance, the soul suffers from abandonment and the greatest poverty, dry and cold and at times hot. It finds relief in naught, nor is there any thought that can console it, nor can it even raise its heart to God. Now, I have to bring up this analogy of John of the Cross of the log in the fire. And you can find this in the Dark Knight, Book 2, Chapter 10. And it explains how this purgation works using this comparison of the log of wood and fire. And so I'm going to be quoting uh, John of the Cross here um, extensively. But I think it's a great analogy to help us understand and, and it helps us understand some of the sufferings that we go through that purify us. Not sufferings due to our habitual sin, because we want to get rid of those, right? We're talking about the more hidden imperfections, the, the, the roots that we're really not always cognizant of. So here we go, uh, quoting John of the Cross. For the sake of further clarity in this manner, we ought to note that this purgative and loving knowledge or divine light we are speaking of has the same effect on a soul that fire has on a log of wood. The soul is purged and prepared for union with the divine light just as the wood is prepared for transformation into fire. Fire, when applied to wood, first dehumidifies it, dispelling all moisture and making it give off any water it contains. Then it gradually turns the wood black makes it dark and ugly, and even causes it to emit a bad odor. By drying out the wood, the fire brings to light and expels all those ugly and dark accidents that are contrary to fire, or contrary to fire. Finally, by heating and enkindling it from without, the fire transforms the wood into itself and makes it as beautiful as it is itself. Once transformed, the wood no longer has any activity or passivity of its own, except for its weight and its quantity that is denser than the fire. It possesses the properties and performs the action of fire. It is dry and it dries. It is hot and it gives off heat. It is brilliant and it illumines. It is also much lighter in weight than before. It is the fire that produces all these properties in the wood. Before transforming the soul, the divine loving fire of contemplation, the flame being the Holy Spirit, purges it of all contrary qualities, bad habits and imperfections. It produces blackness and darkness and brings to the fore the soul's ugliness. Thus one seems worse than before and unsightly and abominable because the soul is seeing the roots of its ugliness for the first time and they are deep. The sufferings come from the soul's own weakness and imperfection. Imperfections are what make up the fuel that catches on fire. While being purged and purified, the soul is further enkindled in love. The purifying love comes back more intensely and more inwardly than before, acting more and more interiorly. The soul at this time is only conscious of its own bitterness. Placed in these more interior sufferings, the soul is blinded as to all exterior good. It's God's spiritual flashlight shining on every speck in the soul. The results are the great fruit. When the soul is so far transformed and perfected interiorly in the fire of love, the soul is not only united with this fire, which is God, but has now become one living flame within it 
such the soul feels itself to be. Now, if, you, if you'd like to have another explanation of this, you can find it online by searching for an article. It's called, What St. John of the Cross Can Teach Us Today About Growth in Holiness and Discernment. It's by Father Daniel Chowning, a discalced Carmelite friar, and Father Joseph Hirsch. So you can find it online. Again, it's called, What St. John of the Cross Can Teach Us Today About Growth in Holiness and discernment. So we're going to take a short break and when we come back I'm going to introduce you to the secret mystical ladder of Saint John of the Cross that he talks about in the dark night. This is the same ladder that our beloved Saint Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart will climb. And after we talk about that ladder we'll we'll talk about some of the experiences that St. Teresa Margaret has in her life. So we'll take a short break and then we'll be right back. Thank you. This is Francis Harry, and we are talking about The Lord Thy God is a Consuming Fire, St. Teresa Margaret Reddy of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Dark Night of the Spirit. And I was just about ready to introduce to you the mystical ladder of divine love. This comes from St. John of the Cross, um, his book called The Dark Night. It's in book two of that book. Um, book one talks about the dark night of sense. Book two talks about the dark night of spirit, which is the more severe night. And this latter is in chapter 19. So this part is the passive dark night of the spirit as opposed to the active. Passive being what God does in the soul. And Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28 verses 12 and 13 actually prefigures this ladder. It's a ladder of the infused contemplation of the divine flow of God into the soul. It really does happen. And we've had many saints go through this. And we've had many saints talk about this. And so we're going to be talking more about St. Teresa Margaret Reddy and how this plays out in her life. God purges and illumines the soul to prepare it to enter into divine union. And of course, we're familiar with the principle, no pain, no gain. Well, it's the same in the spiritual life. God is reorienting the soul so that it may participate in the perfect union of love with him. The soul is catching on fire, like a log on fire, burning with the fire of the divine love of God, becoming a flame of love. Boy, do we need flames of love on earth, right? If we were pure already, this purifying love of God would be delectable, wonderful. And, and this is probably what the Blessed Virgin Mary experienced. Because she had no sin, so there was nothing to burn up, right? Most souls are not pure. And so the pure love that is received is at first perceived as painful. As the divine light shows us more clearly our faults and imperfections, our deficiencies, it's like that flashlight on the cobwebs. You know, it's sort of like a fancy wedding. If, if you were invited to a fancy wedding, you wouldn't dare walk into to that wedding. Everybody all dressed up fancy and, and you be in rags and stinky and sweaty. No, of course not. Um, but in order to enter into a pure union with God, 
we must be cleansed, purified. St. John of the Cross teaches us, quote, However greatly the soul itself labors, it cannot actively purify itself so as to be in the least degree prepared for the divine union of perfection of love. If God takes not its hand and purges it not in the dark fire. So we can't do it by ourselves. There's, there's a part that only God can do. And um, we have to cooperate with his grace and be disposed to receive his grace to allow him to do this purification. Otherwise, we don't get there. So the dark night of the spirit, if you put it on the framework of the mansions of the interior castle that St. Teresa of Avila talks about, would fall into the sixth mansion, as, as I had said before. So here we're talking about souls that are very high state of union with the Lord, as is St. Teresa Margaret ready at this point. Uh, they've already traversed successfully the dark night of the sense, and now this dark night of spirit, you know, it can occur over many years. Uh, for St. Teresa of Avila, she was in this stage like 15, 16 years. And of course, God used her to teach us all about it too, right? The dark night of the sense in the fourth mansion, though it's bitter and terrible, it seems mild in comparison to what happens in this sixth mansion in this dark night of the spirit. And this is what John the Cross says about it. Although this happy night brings darkness to the spirit, it does so only to give it light in everything. And that although it humbles it and makes it miserable, it does so only to exalt it and to raise it up. And although it impoverishes it and empties it of all natural affection and attachment, it does so only that it may enable it to stretch forward divinely and thus to have fruition and experience of all things both above and below yet to preserve its unrestricted liberty of spirit in them all. So now I've set the stage. Now let's go climb that ladder, right? This is the secret mystical ladder of divine love where the soul is ascending to God. And John of the Cross divides it up into ten steps. So here we go. Here's the first step, the first rung of the ladder. Here the soul must languish in aridity but to its advantage, so as to desire nothing but God. The soul is actually sick for the glory of God. John the Cross says, This sickness, however, is not unto death, but for the glory of God. For in this sickness the soul swoons as to sin, and as to all things that are not God, for the sake of God himself. In Scripture we have John 11, verse 4, This illness, this illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You know, the soul's languishing pertains to sin and to all that is not of God. The second rung of the ladder, the soul seeks God unceasingly. John the Cross says on this step, the soul now walks so anxiously that it seeks the Beloved in all things. In whatsoever it thinks, it thinks at once of the Beloved. Of whatsoever it speaks, in whatsoever matters present themselves, it is speaking and communing at once with the beloved. When it eats, when it sleeps, when it watches, when it does aught soever, all its care is about the beloved, as is said above with respect to the yearnings of love. On the third rung, the soul receives the fervor necessary for this pursuit, and it works eagerly so as not to fail. And so on this step, that the soul is prompted to the performance of works, and it gives it fervor so it doesn't fail. John the Cross says, On this step, the soul considers great works undertaken for the beloved as small, many things as few, and the long time for which it serves him as short, by reason of the fire of love wherein it is now burning. Love makes all burdens light, right? On the fourth step, so we're, we're getting up there slowly but surely, and these are deeper and de deeper degrees of union and love. Fourth, the soul suffers habitually for God, but not, but, excuse me, but without weariness, as the will is now enkindled with divine love. The spirit here has so much strength that it has subjected the flesh and takes as little account of it as does the tree of one of its leaves. 
In no way does the soul here seek its own consolation or pleasure, either in God or aught else, nor does it desire or seek to pray to God for favors, for it sees clearly that it has already received enough of these, and all its anxiety is set upon the manner wherein it will be able to do something that is pleasing to God. So all it wants to do is to please God in all of its works. On the fifth step, we're halfway here, the soul impatiently yearns for God so that it is afflicted by every moment without union with God. John the Cross says on this step, the vehemence of the lover to comprehend the beloved and be united with him is such that every delay, however brief, becomes very long, wearisome, and oppressive to it. It is in an anxious hurry to get with God, right? On the sixth rung, the intellect receives touches of divine illumination. The soul remains driven by divine love infused in the will. Charity and hope increase. All right, isn't that a good sign? The soul runs swiftly toward God and experiences many touches in him. This is very encouraging, right? The soul runs without fainting by reason of its hope. John of the Cross says of this step, the prophet Isaiah speaks thus. The saints that hope in God shall renew their strength. They shall take wings as the eagle. They shall fly and shall not faint. That's Isaiah 40, verse 31. The cause of this swiftness in love, which the soul has on this step, is that its charity is greatly enlarged within it, since the soul is here almost wholly purified. You can remember St. Teresa of Avila talking about the enlarging of the heart and how important that is. Leading to the seventh step now is unbounded faith and hope. This is the faith that moves mountains, and it's received only by divine favor. This is when you see the saints exercising holy boldness, ardent holy boldness. St. John the Cross says here, love employs not its judgment in order to hope, nor does it take counsel so that it may draw back, neither can any shame restrain it. For the favor which God here grants to the soul causes it to become vehement in its boldness. And for 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, charity believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now we go to the eighth step. The eighth step impels the soul to lay hold of, to seize the beloved without letting him go. You capture the beloved. Certain souls climb some way and then they lose their hold. For if this state were to continue, it would be glory itself in this life. And thus the soul remains therein for very short periods of time. In the Song of the Songs, chapter 3, verse 4, I found him whom my heart and soul love. I held him and did not let him go. The ninth step of this secret mystical ladder of love is where the soul is perfected, burning gently and sweetly in God. This is like that wood that has become uh, one with the fire that is, it is um, all aflame. Uh, you can just imagine as you look into a fire, you can see that wood, uh, bright, red, uh, pulsating. This was the state of the apostles, John of the Cross says, the highest possible state while united to corrupt flesh. This step is that of the perfect who now burns sweetly in God. For this sweet and delectable ardor is caused in them by the Holy Spirit by reason of the union which they have with God. So beautiful. And then that leads to the final step on this ladder of divine love, the tenth step. They ascend from the ninth step immediately to the tenth, which is the beatific vision. The tenth step of this ladder of divine love is not of this life. But is the soul being assimilated to God completely by reason of clear and immediate vision of God, which it then possesses. 
This step is that of the perfect who now burns sweetly in God. This is John verse chapter 16, verse 23. On that day, you will not ask me anything. And that's because you see God face to face, right? All is revealed. So throughout this second dark night, the dark night of the spirit, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity are active. Faith enables a man to persevere even when heaven seems closed. It darkens the intellect with regard to natural intelligence to prepare for union with divine wisdom. Hope withdraws from the memory all that is created, however lofty, and instead focuses upon union with God as its sole object. Charity annihilates the desire for things that are not God, including oneself. Insofar as the infused contemplations of the second dark night come directly from God, the devil has no power to interfere. There are some conditions where the devil is permitted, however, to assault the soul with directly with horrors beyond description. And this affliction is but a mortification preparing for loftier contemplation and a higher degree in heaven. Those who pass through the second dark night, the night of the spirit, have the spiritual soul fully purged. The purified soul gazes upon nothing but God in whom it finds perfect bliss. There you go, heaven. Now, let us return to the life of St. Teresa Margaret Reddy to examine how the dark night of the spirit played out in her and what we can learn to be prepared for such a purgation. To enter the night of the spirit, one must renounce not only material things from earlier, but now we particularly must renounce spiritual things, and especially renouncing one's own will. And we know that's hard. You know, look at how many people fail at their resolutions of denying themselves during a Lent. Um, and this is a, a denouncing, or renouncing rather, renouncing your will all the time. Desolation and privation are not ordered for one's death, however, though, but for a true life in God, a union with God, a fullness of God. After St. Teresa Margaret's grace of Deus Caritas Est, God is love, she enters the desert of spiritual aridity. With all consolation and fervor for her devotions now escaping her, and she's experiencing increasing feelings of detachment, from every human support. This was a lofty flight of love in the midst of sorrow. It's, it's nothing other than a suffering of love, and that increased daily until the day of her death. Well, what does that look like in her life? Well, she persevered in prayer because she never give up prayer, but her prayer um, was without emotion, without fervor, without the feeling. It was only through an act of her will in love. In fact, she only recognized within herself the great abyss of her poverty or her lack of love. She felt like she did not love God at all. It seemed like the light of faith was eclipsed, hope had vanished, and the love of God had filled her from earliest years, um, was now only a remembrance of some experience in a faraway land. She continued, however, to faithfully execute all of her religious duties despite the dryness and even repugnance with which she carried them out. In this night of the spirit, covered in a dark cloud, her soul was starving in dryness, distaste, and weariness. Some of you might really uh, relate to that. Yet, she rested in gentle tranquility and peace in the very depths of the soul. Through all doubts and anxieties, she persevered, and so must we, in exercising to a heroic degree the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And that's why they seem like they're missing, because now she has to exercise them to a heroic degree. Yes, this is the saint-making process. Margaret Rowe the author of God is Love, the book that we're using for this series, described the state St. Teresa Margaret was in at this time in these words, to love and yet to enjoy no feeling or consolation of that love 
was the spiritual martyrdom of these final months. And of course, was no doubt um, part of her offering to be a victim, a victim soul of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Margaret Rowe goes on, the fact is that the increasing dissatisfaction with oneself and the growing awareness of the abyss that separates her sinfulness from God's purity is itself a sign of growth in the knowledge and love of God. However, being hidden from the soul, it's a cause of further pain and conflict. Her spiritual director, Father Ildefonce, would describe St. Margaret uh, in these words at this period of her life. He said, The servant of God loved, yet she thought she did not, and from this experienced tremendous sorrow. It became a deep, all-encompassing all encompassing agony for her. The more she was illumined by this pure contemplation of God, these dark rays of contemplation, the more she saw herself as distant from him. The word contemplation, of course, remember, being defined here as the experiential divine flow of God into the soul. John the Cross's definition says contemplation is nothing else than a secret and peaceful and loving inflow of God, which if not hampered, fires the soul in the spirit of love. We get that definition from the Dark Knight, Book 1, Chapter 10. Outwardly, St. Teresa Margaret appeared the same in the eyes of all those around her, all the other nuns in the convent. However, interiorly, she was anguishing in a martyrdom of love through the purifying flames of the night of the spirit. Father Ildefonce continued his description of her state, saying, But her strength and generosity, her fidelity and courage, far from wavering, grew daily stronger, making her undertake all things, however difficult and repugnant, for the love of God. I had recognized in her that supreme state of union through faith. See what virtues we must have, what, what virtues we must be practicing if we're in this dark night of spirit in the sixth mansion. Strength, generosity, fidelity, courage, determination, per perseverance, and, and, and to a heroic degree. Okay, not a beginner's degree or an intermediate, a heroic, saintly degree. St. Teresa Margaret described her state in her own words like this. I find myself in complete interior abandonment, seeing nowhere the least ray of light. The very thought of having to apply myself to the things of God is a torment. Finding myself in utter darkness and fearing in this state to offend our Lord very much, I thought it proper to tell you so as to receive suitable counsel. My former desires scarcely make themselves felt and if by means of spiritual reading they come once more to mind, the reading seems endless and wearisome because of the struggle I have to endure within myself. I feel in the depths of my heart that God wishes me for himself alone, but I am deaf to his voice, particularly in the practice of virtue, for which I experience a keen repugnance. So see the words that she uses to describe her state abandonment, torment, utter darkness, fearing that she's offending God. She doesn't want to offend him. The weariness, struggle, death to his voice, keen repugnance. You know, it's this time that St. Teresa Margaret is shifting from the imitation of Christ's life outwardly to the imitation of his interior dispositions. And these would be the dispositions uh, the interior dispositions of Christ's passion, his interior anguish of desolation, like in the agony of the garden, the intolerable loneliness of one being abandoned by God, afflicted in soul and body. I think you're getting the idea of what we're talking about here. The more her faith and hope were purified, the more Teresa Margaret's love increased, but with it came a deep grief caused by the belief that she uh, neither loved nor served God as she should. It seemed the more that God perfected her, the more he hid from her sight. 
And yet she responds, and this is how we must respond, by clinging to God with her whole soul, with all of her will. St. Therese of Lisieux described this state as Jesus asleep in her boat. And, and she uh, continues persevering with a determined determination here. John the Cross reminds us of this principle. The nearer the soul approached God, the blacker is the darkness which it feels, and the deeper is the obscurity which comes through its weakness. Just as the nearer a man approaches the sun, the greater are the darkness and the affliction caused him through the great splendor of the sun and through the weakness and purity of his eyes. Well, that's how it is until the soul is purified, and then it's heaven on earth, right? Okay, so um, I have much more, but... I'm going to have to hold off until next week to talk about that. Uh, we're, we're going to continue next week talking about uh, St. Teresa Margaret's trial of aridity, um, her coldness in prayer, how she dealt with scrupulosity, um, how she dealt with some of the problems in prayer. You know, actually, in the book that, Saint, that uh, Margaret Rowe wrote, God is love. This chapter 10, I believe that's the chapter, um, it's called The Night of the Spirit. It is a very rich chapter. You just cannot race through this chapter. She tells us so much about what Teresa Margaret was experiencing. And we are applying the teachings of St. John of the Cross to what St. Teresa Margaret, ready of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, is experiencing. And we learn what this uh, dark night of the spirit, which is the most severe of the two nights, the dark night of sense being the first one, the dark night of spirit, the second one. We, we understand more clearly what it entails. So with that, um, I'd like to go to our closing prayer, which I think is very appropriate for the kind of agony we've been, been describing here. It is from Psalm 51, the Miserere, the prayer of repentance. So let us get recollected and ask St. Teresa Margaret ready to help us pray in the spirit of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have mercy on me, God, in your kindness, in your compassion. Blot out my offense. Oh, wash me more and more from my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, nor deprive me of your Holy Spirit. O rescue me, God, my helper, and my tongue shall ring out your goodness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining me on Carmelite Conversations. I look forward to being with you next week, and hopefully uh, Mark will be with us, and we'll continue this discussion of the dark night of the Spirit and what we can learn to help us journey on this uh, uh, path up Mount Carmel. Until then, God bless you.